Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. Has your weekend been restful? Yeah. Good. Yeah, of You're shaking your head no. You're saying yes. Um, it's daylight savings, the bane of every teacher's existence. And I have, by the time this episode comes out, I will have had two pretty long days. So Where there's no sun at either end of them, mm-hmm. right? I go in the dark. I come home in the dark. It's parent-teacher conference you, week. You never do see the light of day. No, but it's time to get out my happy light. Yeah. And crank that puppy up and hope it uh, does enough. Yeah, your imitation sun. Yeah, it's my only hope. The heat lamp that warms all of the geckos in your classroom. My little chickens, yeah. That's what I call them. When they gather around, they look like chickens. Okay, that's cute. Because as soon as I plug it in, everybody all of a sudden has to be up at my desk. Well. Because they're all also craving the the coziest corner in the room now. (laughs) I'll look around, there'll be like four kids. I'm like, no, no, little chicks, go back. (laughs) This is my nest. Goodbye. <laughs> I need to change the wood chips. <laughs> really? So. Okay. Now it's time to plug that thing in. Get some artificial light <laughs> everywhere I go. Yeah. Pretend yeah. there's sun. We've had some interesting goings on uh, just this week. We uh, we actually both were s- somewhat part of the uh, Poetry Out Loud contest mm-hmm. at your school. That yeah. was a lot of fun. Always. Um, I really liked getting to see the kids participate in that. So yeah. that's that's a really cool event. I think so. Yeah. I feel like you're talking really soft or either I'm talking really loud. Oh, you have like your NPR voice on. <laughs> you're like, I'm sorry. And now we'll talk about poetry out loud, which I think is really great. Phoebe Judge. Can you turn up the volume, please? Or I'll meet you here in the middle and we'll read announcements like this. <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> I was doing that. You sound nothing like when you play it back. I want you to listen to everything up until the last thing you just said and okay. tell me what's different. Okay. Okay. It wasn't on purpose. No, I would just really like to read you these announcements. My NPR voice. That's what you were using. And I'm over here screeching my way through this. Well, that's really interesting because when we were playing games the other night when I was on Discord Uh and I was using your headset, the boy said the same thing about me that I was talking like... Like I had a low NPR voice. You do that sometimes. Well, I told them at the time it was because... When I put your headset on, you don't monitor your voice, so you can't, you don't hear your own voice, so I can't tell how loud I am coming through. Yeah. And it's the same case here where I'm looking, I'm actually looking at levels to determine how loud to speak, because I'm matching your volumes. There's no way you were matching my volume. Probably not in that. that. Maybe. There's no way. Well, yeah, I'm not going to say that I do it accurately, but like visually speaking... The level was pretty close to where I'm yours just was. saying none of that was your real voice. That's my radio voice. I know, but that's not that's not who I'm here for. <laughs> NPR is a mood. <laughs> NPR is my dark mood. <laughs> okay. So we had Poetry Out Loud last week. Uh, they've been doing that, I think this was year 12. That's exciting. It's always exciting. You've been part of that tradition for a while, so that's... All 12 years? Neat. Yeah. I just really like seeing the kids recite yeah i guess it's not exactly i was gonna say perform it's kind of a A little bit it's kind of a performance but it's it's a recitation that's i suppose the technical Uh term so anyway that was really neat event that was great um we have just a few announcements before we get to our education headlines um 
I guess the first announcement is that we moved our what we learned back to the end of the episode in case you, you've been following along. I wanted to try it. At the, <laughs> this was a test. I don't know. I wanted to try it at first and in the editing booth, I just didn't like it all that well. So thanks for bearing with us while we experiment with the format a little bit. But uh-huh. I just, I don't know. Back to the way we've been doing it for <laughs> 94 episodes. Yeah, it just didn't feel right. I don't know. I couldn't make it work. So I, anyway. I want the reader, the readers, the listeners to know that I was pro keeping it where it was. Yeah. So this is a the good return for you. You this, think this makes This is a I'm not going to lie. Structurally, I'm, it makes more sense your way. I, I'm I, very pleased. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad. I'm I'm being a little smug about it. <laughs> I'm quite pleased with this decision. Sometimes I like to tinker a little too much or a little too aggressively. Yeah. I'm a tinkerer. Okay. And you're you're a person um I am a if it's not broke don't fix it and you're like uh let's keep it from breaking. Yeah. And, um, well, I try to imagine all the possible ways things could go wrong or better. And I'm, I can't just, I, I really have trouble with being content. So that's a, yeah. that's a me issue. See, I just, once it's set, I'm like, well, that's one less thing to ever have to think about. It will always be here. And yeah. you're like, but what if? <laughs> but what if we change something? We've done 95 times now. Yeah. So anyway, okay. we switched it back. I don't know. We actually did have one listener write in and say he appreciated it. So I'm sorry to that one listener <laughs> who liked it the new way. But um, we're going back to my way. <laughs> it just, I got I do have to say, it did not feel right in the editing booth. It, it just didn't it for me. It didn't feel right recording it. Yeah. If you want to stick around long enough to get to know us in our weird entirety, then you can you can make it through the end. The last segment will be for you if if you care about us in that way. Otherwise. We'll just get right to the meat of the episode for you. You don't have to listen to us figure out what we have learned in the past couple of weeks. So, Okay. So anyway, announcements. Other than that, we would love it if you would sign up for our e-newsletter. You can do that by visiting our website, 16to1.com. 16 to 1 is all spelled out with letters. Bottom of every page, if you scroll down, you can sign up for the newsletter there. We're going to be um, sharing some news and announcements soon. Also along those lines, our 100th episode is coming up. We've been mentioning this for the last couple episodes, but we would love to hear from you. We're doing an entire episode based around ask an educator kind of questions. So like FAQs that you, uh, the burning questions you always wanted to ask of your educators growing up or things that you just always wondered about, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, send those in to us. We're, we're going to, I realize we need a kind of deadline on that. So try to get it to us by Christmas of this year. So the December 25th of 2023, that is the deadline because mm-hmm. we'll be recording it probably right before the first of the year. And we're looking forward to it. That's going to be fun. We yeah. already got some fun questions from veteran listeners of ours. So we really appreciate that. And we're looking mm-hmm. forward to that episode. And then one final note, programming, timing-wise, we're going to take a break from normal episodes during Thanksgiving week and also during Christmas weeks. We don't take off any other regular dates during the year, uh, but it just gets a little bit hectic this time of year for us and for educators generally. So we just cut back a little bit, give ourselves a break, and then we will, of course, after that, catch up with you in the new year for our 100th episode. Yay. Okay, headlines. Education headlines from the last couple of weeks around the world. Would you like to start us off? Yes. Number one. The U.S. Department of Education is penalizing the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority for failing to send timely bills to 2.5 million loan holders. The department is withholding $7.2 million in payments to the group and has directed them to place affected borrowers in forbearance until the issue is resolved. More than 800,000 borrowers became delinquent as a result of this group's late statements. 
Federal student loan repayments had been on hold since 2020 in the wake of COVID, but resumed last month. Yeah, I think this is somewhat related to the Biden administration's efforts to reduce burdens on student loan borrowers. I mean, that's kind of been a pillar of his policy the the entire time. So Mm -hmm. this isn't surprising that we see some of this enforcement. I think I heard there was a rep from the education department said, well, we can penalize borrowers for late payments. Why can't we penalize loan issuers for late statements? So kind of an interesting approach, but yeah. Okay. Um, The second story is about Portland, Portland, Oregon, where teachers went on strike uh, this past Wednesday. This impacts more than 45,000 students in the Portland public school system. The Portland Association of Teachers is calling for increased teacher pay, smaller class sizes, and more funding and resources to address the needs of a school system straining under post-pandemic socioeconomic pressures and disciplinary issues, among other things. This kind of adds to the list of other high-profile teacher strikes that have been occurring over the last couple of years, including one that was pretty widely covered at um, LAUSD, LA Unified School Districts, and uh, the one here in Columbus, Ohio, which we covered in episode 66 of this podcast last year. Okay. Yeah. The Washington Post has conducted a fascinating study on the sharp rise in the number of families in the U.S. who are choosing to homeschool their children. The Post writes it collected reliable data from 32 states and across thousands of school districts in the U.S., and that the numbers show a drastic increase of about 50% over the past six school years in the rate of homeschooling that has persisted, despite predictions that classrooms would return to normal after schools return to in-person instruction in the wake of COVID-19. We'll share the link to this story in the show notes. There's a lot of interesting analysis, so go check it out. Yeah. It seems that the number of homeschooled children is uh, up for debate across many states. Yeah, there was some part of the study that was interesting is that it revealed some methodological issues with record keeping and all kinds of stuff. Not every state records exits from the public schools to homeschooling in the same way, stuff like that. So it's kind of hard to report on this stuff. But yeah, I think they said they covered something like 7,000 school districts or something yeah. like that. It's a big study. Mm-hmm. So well, like you said, that's a story in Washington Post. Go go read it. We'll put the link in the show notes. This episode, we are covering schools and the foster system. Yes. And we wanted to start by acknowledging that uh, the foster system is a very complicated system in America and in states. And we're trying to cover the foster care system in a way that makes people aware of its impact on education. Yeah. I also want to mention that I'm adopted. So this is a very interesting topic for me to talk about. Uh, I was never placed in foster care because the people who took me. Um, at five days older, the people who adopted me and raised me. So I was very fortunate, but I'm also was raised by a teacher and by a caseworker, um, a social worker. So yeah. I have very deep ties in a lot of ways, uh, to this system and the understanding of the system. I don't think that Chelsea, Chelsea or myself intend to stand on a soapbox about it, but we hope to bring awareness to the fact that this is a flawed system that at its heart is doing something that we hope it doesn't have to do. And that navigating those things is very, very difficult. Yeah. And that we always want children at home where they belong, Mm -hmm. but that isn't always possible. And so here we go. Yeah. So as you can imagine, there's a long and storied history here and it doesn't really start in the United States. It can go, we could go back even farther than this, but I started us with English poor law, 1500s in 1562. There's this body of law called the English Poor Law, and these laws allowed for the placement of poor children in England to be 
placed into indentured servitude until they came of age. This practice got imported into the U.S. Uh, it's just what everybody did to deal with this social problem, I guess. And it was this was sort of the beginning of how we placed children into homes. And this system of indentured service permitted abuse and exploitation, as you can imagine. It was a step forward, though, from almshouses, where children were frequently not taught, you know, skills or trades, and they lived in usually not great conditions and were frequently under the supervision of, let's just say, unsavory adults mm-hmm. a lot of times These in these almshouses. And then the next couple of points, we're going to move to the U.S. here. And the following information is from this article in what's called the Adoption History Project, published by the University of Oregon. It's kind of interesting, but they sort of started off by talking about the the modern roots of the foster system in the U.S. And these were definitely kickstarted by the efforts of a minister, evangelical reformer, and social worker by the name of Charles Loring Brace. Mm-hmm. He founded what was called the New York Children's Aid Society in 1853. He was concerned, let's just say, about the number of unhoused children that were living in New York City streets. Brace was the author of a little piece of work that he called The Best Method of Disposing of Our Pauper and Vagrant Children. Mm-hmm. He wrote that in 1859. He did. He said the quiet part out loud. He did. Um, he devised a plan to ship the poor children of New York on orphan trains. This was what they were called, or mm-hmm. he called them. I'm not sure which, mm-hmm. but he shipped them on orphan trains to homes outside of the boundaries of the the cities. <laughs> um, he advertised to families in the South and in the West, and by the way, specifically to Anglo-Protestant families. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, he's he's serving a, yeah. a religious goal here. There's definitely some of that going on behind the scenes. This guy did not really think of Catholic families, especially those he was seeing in New York, big influ- influx of that population in New York at this time. He, he basically saw Catholic families as unfit to raise a lot of children. So a lot of times these children aren't, are not necessarily taken in, in just circumstances. So anyway, this guy, this, this is the foundation of modern foster systems yeah. in this country. So Feels anyway, bad. yeah, it's, it's, it's fraught for sure. But anyway, he pl- he places ads in the South and West of the United States for Anglo-Protestant families willing to provide homes for, in many cases, Catholic children, but not always. And then a lot of times these kids were placed in circumstances that were that ended up being similar to indentured service. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yikes. Very anyway, tough. so as a result of this uh, New York Children's Aid Society's placement programs, more sectarian groups and social agencies and eventually state governments become involved in systems of foster care. And there were three states in particular that this article called attention to. That's Massachusetts, which uh, prior to 1865 began to pay families who took care of children who were too young to be entered into indentured servitude. Pennsylvania passed the first licensing law in 1885. This made it a misdemeanor to care for, I think, more than two unrelated children without a license. Huh. Then South Dakota began providing subsidies to the Children's Home Society after it was organized in 1893 for its public child care work. So, fast forward. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not great. So during the early 1900s, social agencies began to supervise foster parents and record keeping becomes more commonplace. Thank Should, goodness. Yes. The individ- Finally. I know. The individual needs of children start to be considered when placements are being made. My gosh, what a what an interesting theory. Oh what an interesting heavens. concept. 
Services are provided to natural families to enable the child to return home, and foster parents are now seen as part of a professional team working to find Mm -hmm. permanency for dependent children. Good. Yeah. And then we have to wait all the way until 1980. Not good. Until until the next major reform of the federal uh, system, or how it interfaces with the foster, foster care. Yeah, in 1980, we get the Adoption Assistance and Child Welfare Act. This is uh, June 17th, 1980. It passes. Its purpose was to establish a federal program of adoption assistance to strengthen the program of foster care assistance for needy and dependent children and to improve the child welfare, social services, and aid to families with dependent children programs. This is the first time we see federal subsidies Mm -hmm. to encourage the adoption of children from the foster care system. That was way later than I expected it to be. Yeah, it's too late for, for too the little, federal. Too late for the I federal think. system to step in and yeah. do some of that. So anyway, well, during that time though, we still saw a lot of like boys and girls homes and things like that. So a lot of children who would have fit, you know, the qualifications of needing a foster placement were often put in group homes, which were more common and are less common today. Although they do still exist. Yeah. Okay, in 2015, the Every Student Succeeds Act contains specific provisions regarding foster care and its overlap with public education systems. Yeah, we've talked about this act before. This is the Obama era kind of renewal of No Child Left Behind. Right. Yeah. So it has broken it down to what has to be covered as part of the education for a student in foster care. Yeah, this is supposed to be giving more specific guidance just because there hadn't been an update to... Mm -hmm. Yeah, there there hadn't been a lot of guidance prior to been. this about how schools specifically should be interacting right. with the foster system. So that's what this attempted to do. So yeah, go ahead. So here's how they broke it down. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a school of origin, which stated that state plans must include assurances that foster youth be enrolled or remain in their school of origin unless there is a determination that it's not in their best interest to do so. So the hope is that your home school district is where you will remain when you are placed in the foster yes. system. Gotcha. Their best hope is that you stay there. I mean, that makes sense for so many reasons, but yeah. just like continuity of mm-hmm. your learning is a big, and just the disruption. But it's a hard thing to yeah. ensure, but that's the hope. Absolutely. It's, it's a huge disruption to, yes. especially younger students, to bounce around. So, For students in foster care, um, there will be immediate enrollment, which means that if they are not to remain in their school of origin, they will immediately be enrolled in a new school, regardless of whether... They can produce the records typically required. Oh, interesting. So for enrollment, moved, so like right. residencies. Yeah, because and... a lot of times when we have students move like from state to state, we will know they're coming, but they don't start showing up until we've actually received records from the state. In the case of foster care placements like that, the expectation is that they show up, we get them in immediately, they start classes, and then we'll work once we get everything we need. That makes sense because, again, it's this is all aimed to disrupt the life yes. of a student as little as possible exactly. while they're already going through an extremely disruptive phase of mm-hmm. their life. So, okay, interesting. So, along with that is a records transfer. So, when a student does change schools, the enrolling school immediately has to contact the previous school to obtain their academic and all of their records so that we know exactly where they should be placed as quickly as possible. So, it's like part of this is ensuring timeliness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And in the case of, you know, students like this, though, it's on us as a school district to ensure we're getting the information we need because the people who would normally do it are not part of the conversation. Right. So they have a state level point of contact and a local level point of contact. So for the school state, districts do is that 
Is that mm -hmm. what I'm, okay. Gotcha. So the state education agencies must designate a point of contact for child welfare agencies. And then for the local point of contact, local education agencies must collaborate with the state or the local child welfare agency to designate a point of contact if the child welfare agency has given notice of designating its own point of contact. So basically, everybody has to be talking to each other. Yeah. So it's mandated whatever, communication. If they have a county, you know what I mean, representation, if they are given one by the court, if it's whatever, all of these people have to be in communication with each other, which usually involves like the school's administration, the school's social worker. The student usually has a social worker that's um, from the county of which they came from or are living, something like that. Mm -hmm. They have transportation, which means that local education agencies must collaborate with state or local child welfare agencies to implement a clear written procedure as to how to get them where they need to be. And that includes if they're in their school of origin or to their new place. Um, but all of this travel has to be provided, arranged, and funded gotcha. for the student. This and, is so interesting. Yeah. I didn't really know about the specifics of these provisions mm -hmm. and this is this is I'm glad to hear that this yeah. exists. And then there's also data, of course. A data mandate always. Okay, so states must provide disaggregated data on foster youth. What that means is that in our annual state report cards, um, it has to contain the information on student achievement for foster youth. Yeah. And it must also contain information on high school graduation rates for the foster youth. Yes. And that's a part of our factor. Even if the student was in our school for zero days, but was enrolled two days, 10 days, whatever, they're a reflection of us. Yeah. And the disaggregation bit is just to make sure that this student population doesn't get kind of lumped in lost. and therefore or, ignored. Or yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Lost. lost is a good word for it. Yep. So I wanted to get. Uh, just a working definition. So I borrow the one from <laughs> the website for what is now called the Ohio Department of Education and Workforce. Oh, do. Oh, do. For those of uh, you who... Uh, I went to the website. We've been talking about this. If you've missed the last few episodes, we've been talking about the Ohio Department of Education's evolution into Odoo at the direction of oh. the governor. Yeah. We have something else to add. Oh, what's that? Recently, when we traveled back to Ohio, we saw the new slogan, which is our old slogan, <laughs> which was the previous slogan. We, talked about we are back this. to the heart of it all. Yeah. We we changed right? our slogan for a while. DeWine to made it. Find it here? Find it here. And then everybody decided that that was, in fact, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea. And we changed it back to what it was before, which is the heart of it all. And now our state entrance signs reflect that we are once again yeah, the heart of it all. It took them forever. Because wasn't it like this time last year that they decided to switch I, it? Uh, it might have been a little longer, but yeah. But it's been forever. Our but, most recent trip. Back to Ohio. Yeah. We saw... And no longer... We can no longer find it here. We can no longer because there never was. But we did see our tax dollars in real time. We as sure we did. updated the sign that was like a year old. <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> they, so they as Odoo goes... Just put the original one back up. They probably... They probably just put it in storage. <laughs> Odot like, just kept it. <laughs> what the heck do we do with this sign? ODOT's like somebody on it's probably hanging in some ODOT worker's garage yeah, he probably just went and got it out of the the guy's garage and put it back up on the interstate I mean like his personal garage like he just yeah. picked up his feet drinking beer staring no. at it yeah no why wouldn't you and <laughs> I now totally would. I wonder now which guy has the fine here sign in his garage. I want that sign. If you or anyone you know works for Odot and has in your possession a find it here sign, I would pay. I desperately would love to have the find it here sign. 
<laughs> anyway. So as the naming goes, Odoo is here. Odoo. As Which, compared to O-D-E. It kind of just sounds like a, an Irish surname, maybe. Uh, Odoo. It okay. feels like a joke. Uh, anyway. Okay, sorry. I had to include that because I know we've talked about our slogan. We have. The Ohio, the, the official motto of o- Ohio. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's not a slogan. <laughs> I, it actually might be the tourism slogan, which is okay. different from the official motto. I think the motto has more God in it. I think our it. motto is like, our God, with God all things yeah, are possible. It's more religious in right. nature. Not find, find it here. here. And they meant God. <laughs> find God here. Find Jesus here in the lowlands of Chilla Coffee. <laughs> find it here inside That's- the Great Circleville Pumpkin. <laughs> I just no, figured if we were going to go do south, that, we might as well. That stretch is uh, where the seal comes from. Oh. That stretch down the chili coffee. The stretch of nothing but corn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know the seal? With the corn? With the corn. <laughs> that part. It's very distinct. That corn is different from the corn here. That's where it's from. <laughs> that there's rare corn. That there is that corn on that coin. God, I love Ohio. We're, we're only poking slight fun at this because we're both from extremely rural parts of Ohio. So we're, I mean, we're, uh, we're allowed. I just want to earn some credibility. This is our people. I walked outside and I was like, what's on fire? They're, they're taking up the beans. They're, everything. They're burning the beans? No, they're not burning the beans, but the, oh, the field out there them. is, that it's harvested, but they're, clearing it gotcha and everything outside is just like it looks like smoke but oh that's dust. probably why i cannot breathe yeah. and my throat hurts but today. i walked outside and i was like are my glasses dirty <laughs> nope the air is dirty and i turned around and i could see the anyways so that's my credibility as to how i know that's that corn okay anyways odoo back to odoo ohio department of education and workforce which has a despite ridiculous name a, a useful de- definition for foster care Foster care is defined as 24-hour substitute care for children placed away from their parents or guardians for whom a custodial agency has placement and care responsibility. A child can be removed from their home and placed into custody of a custodial agency through an official court order or emergency intervention by law enforcement. A custodial agency is a public children's service agency or Title IV juvenile court. A child placed in foster care could live in a foster family home, foster home of relatives, group home, emergency shelter, residential facility, childcare institution, or pre-adoptive home. So, I grabbed some current statistics from the Annie Casey Foundation. That's, if you're in the nonprofit world, the Annie Casey Foundation is huge and well-known, and they mm-hmm. do a lot of social research and programming, and especially, I think it's all focused on youth. Big deal in, in the world where we work. So, I just grabbed some recent statistics from their website. It said that in 2021... About 200,000 children under 18 entered foster care in the United States at a rate of 3 per 1,000 students. Rate of entry has hovered at 3 or 4 per 1,000 students for two decades. Kids aged 1 to 5 make up the largest share, which is 29% as of 2021, of children entering care. National data also show that Black and American Indian and Alaskan Native children continue to be overrepresented among those entering foster care. In 2021, uh, black children represented 20% of those entering care, but only 14% of the total child population, while American Indian and Alaskan Native kids made up 2% of those entering care and 1% of the child population. Reasons for this are very obviously quite complex. Efforts to improve racial equity in child welfare has been underway for many years. Mm -hmm. And again, that's according to the NEEKC Foundation website. So just a couple of current 
statistics from the Ohio, uh, the, from Odoo. From um, Odoo. And just, Our dear friends at Odoo. If you happen to be listening in Ohio, just to give some sense of it, uh, we have 16,722 students in foster care in the 2021-2022 school year. So, Okay. Challenges that are unique to this population of students. Yeah. Things like frequent school changes, because yeah. foster students often experience frequent changes in their living arrangements. That can lead to multiple school transfers, disrupting their educational continuity, attendance, academic progress. That's it's things like maybe going from an extended family member's home to a foster care that you might be unrelated to. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know if this is consistent with your experience, but I would guess that this discontinuity issue would be the biggest hurdle to serving this population. It is for sure. It's just so chaotic Mm -hmm. to miss really kind of any amount of school, but especially just what the court system requires, Mm -hmm. how it interfaces with all this stuff too. So anyway, yeah, just a lot of disruptions. Um, Obviously things like trauma and emotional distress. Many of these children have experienced trauma or neglect which can obviously lead to emotional or psychological challenges that impact their learning and behavior in their classroom and and just their lives. Yeah. Uh, They often might face a lack of basic resources. A lot of these students might show up at school without the things that they need. Could it be clothing or stable place to do homework or even backpacks or just anything? Yeah. Depending on the situation, they might have left in a hurry or they might not have known they were leaving. And so oftentimes these students come to us with nothing. I forget who it was, but we were talking with someone who serves populations of youth in foster system. And they were saying that shoes are always like Mm -hmm. shoes are always needed because sometimes these kids just get like swooped up and Mm -hmm. leave with they don't even have time to put on their shoes. And it's just like, yeah. anyway, I don't know why that's really stuck in my mind for some Mm -hmm. reason. But yeah. Sometimes it is in a hurry. Yeah. You know, yeah. These students oftentimes have a difficulty building relationships Uh, And I can easily understand how that's the case because you might have a hard time maintaining relationships with people if if you're moving often or because when you do go somewhere, you may think, well, I won't be here long. So there's no point in investing. Why invest? Yep. That obviously comes with educational gaps. They could have missed a lot of school or um, don't value it again because they might be moving or changing or something like that. All kinds of disruptions and instability in their life. Yeah. Um, oftentimes that also means an overrepresentation in special ed, and that can lead to a misdiagnosis or even receiving inappropriate services. Yeah. Can, can I just interject a sidebar about Please. this? Something that I learned while we were researching this episode, um, I used to live in Maryland, lived there for about a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no idea until I was researching for this very episode that the Baltimore foster system was under consent decree, a federal consent decree and had been since like, ugh, I want to say like the mid late 80s. I can't remember exactly what year it started, but decades. It's been under a consent decree and they have to I think they have to make three consecutive maybe quarters or something it is mm-hmm. having met the criteria of the mm-hmm. consent decree in order for it to be lifted and it hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, very recently there's been a new lawsuit brought against the I can't remember if it's Baltimore or all of Maryland's foster system about improperly administering meds for ADHD. Yeah. Like psych meds, basically Mm -hmm. improperly administering um, a lot of students in the foster program are being medicated. That shouldn't be, that should not be because there is no doctor's order. I didn't, I didn't get Mm -hmm. to read very much into the details of this case, but there's, it's, it's just a new lawsuit that tacks onto 
uh, this ongoing situation of the consent other, decree in Baltimore, yeah. and I just I didn't know any of that, mm-hmm. and it kind of it kind of shocked me the the history of mm-hmm. abuses and and how troubling that was, and I just yeah. anyway that was an interesting thing that I learned, but yeah, like a lot of the times these kids don't have medical advocates or the ones they do have have very limited resources you know stuff like that they're sharing their medical advocates among thousands of students in a district or something like that so it can be really hard that and you consider you know if they go into a new home they might not have any medical records that come with them or active medication prescriptions or it's hard enough to get medical records like as a a well-equipped human adult i was an adult trying to get them because i'd been in a car wreck and it was the hardest thing i'd ever done yeah I was begging them. So imagine you're you're yeah. a, a child trying yeah. to navigate that. Right. <laughs> Just anyway. Well, the last couple of things that kind of come into the system is oftentimes a lack of advocacy. Yeah. They lack a consistent advocate who can actively engage with their school. This often means that they have unaddressed needs or limited access to support. And part of that is because, and this was the case even when my mom was working, is that many of these caseworkers and social workers are so maxed out on their caseload with what they had to do that there aren't enough of them. You know, they're facing a shortage as well. And that has been the case 20 years ago. Yeah. And then there are also legal and administrative challenges. Um, the legal complexities of the foster care system can create administrative challenges in obtaining records and making, you know, the best educational decisions for these children. So there are a lot of issues that districts are dealing with, that social workers are dealing with, and Everyone's trying their best to work together, but it's it's a very complicated system between the court, the county, the family, you know, everyone. I want to move on so we can share a few thoughts on best practices for approaching these problems that you have just outlined. We got to keep those challenges in mind and kind of create a holistic approach to the welfare of these students in this subpopulation. We might be dealing with literacy delays, like you were mentioning, these underlying emotional stressors, all of this stuff might require things that are a little bit different from typical school populations. Mm -hmm. The earlier interventions can happen, the better. The more we treat this issue as one of like a kind of holistic approach to education and child welfare, the the better it ends up being for Mm -hmm. students in this population. I think the other thing that's unique about this population is that they require targeted preparation for emancipation from the foster system. It's not necessarily natural to have a plan for what happens Mm-mm. next. Not at um, all. Your parents, your guardians, your grandparents, your raisins, as you like to call them, mm-hmm. whoever's raising them, um, those people often instigate those conversations, drive them, you know, set timetables and reminders, and mm-hmm. the instability of the foster system prevents some of that from happening. So targeted approaches that help these students be prepared for that kind of thing is really important. Like financing college or job training or all of these kinds of things, uh, especially as the students get older is always, Mm -hmm. always important. But yeah. So just from your perspective, the classroom educator, I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what best practices are with reaching this population, uh, given all of these unique constraints and challenges. As I was writing this section, I realized that it just had to be boiled down to patience That was the thing that mattered, and that comes in a lot of ways. I think it's important for teachers and educators and the people working with these students to know the the situation of which they are placed in. Not knowing every single detail, obviously, but just to know a student is in foster care really helps us better 
cater to that student, if that makes sense. Yeah, communication is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Me knowing that they're in a group home or in a foster home, and this might be temporary or not, really helps me kind of gauge what I need to be focusing on with them. Those are the kids that we do our best to connect with, obviously. And because like we talked about, those are kids that have a hard time making connections a lot of times and can be pretty distant, and rightfully so. If your whole life you had been in temporary after temporary after temporary placements, you would probably not have much of an interest in connecting with people. So what I have found for me is that me knowing that this is their situation is great um, just to help me better serve them. It's also an opportunity for me to get to talk to them kind of about me being adopted because it's not very common. Yeah. And I'm very, very fortunate. My adoption was a dream. It couldn't have been better. So I like talking to students about that because I want them to know that they're surrounded by all kinds of people with all kinds of experiences and that me being adopted does nothing different from them being, you know, like they have had a much harder road than I had, certainly, but it doesn't limit them from anything else. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities for students in foster care. You know, your your social workers and your uh, guidance counselors and things like that can help if college is an interest and the state has money for that kind of thing. And so, like I said earlier, I don't, I don't think it's a perfect system. I think it's a difficult system. Yeah. I mean, I, I but think I don't a- know how to make it perfect either Sure, because the situation is so awful to begin with. Like the hope is always that a, a child is home, right? Wherever home is with whomever, whatever home is to them, that's where you want them. And so if they're not there, that's already the worst thing that could have happened to them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that at times, rightfully so, these agencies take a lot of flack. But I also I also know a lot of really good people who are in those agencies and who work for those agencies and, and who are foster parents and mm-hmm. things like that. And and I know what their emotional take home and concern is and their we love. Have several for, friends who have inter- who are foster yeah, parents. I mean, who, one know. of my administrators is. Yeah. And yeah. um I you know, you can just tell like he's He's gutted when those kids go, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. they're part of their family. So yeah. I, like I said, I didn't set out to stand on a soapbox and wave the flag or something, but I also think it's a very hard thing to get right. Absolutely. And I think that could we always do more? Certainly. But just by its existence, it is difficult because it's the worst thing that can happen to a kid. Mm-hmm. And what kid doesn't want to be with mom or dad or whoever, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, like I said, I think if I had to say one thing, it'd be that knowing is the most important thing I can do because that helps me totally shift my approach. And then from there I can say, I don't know how long I'll have you. Yeah. It's just a, you can do. a totally different baseline you know. of stability. That, and it, yeah. It's like a negotiation that you have to be very aware of in order to best serve a student in this position. Yeah. And there, and there are times that we're told, uh, we don't know how long you're going to have them, you know, whatever. But what I can try to do is at least get some grades in to have some kind of something to send them with. Yeah. Enabling continuity as much as possible yeah. is, is the job of the educator with respect to this, because that's, that's what's so hard. It's, yeah. it's the instability. It's, it's not always this way, but it can no, be a can very be. chaotic kind yeah. of life. So, it can be an awful situation. Yeah, they could yeah. have witnessed something awful. They could have whatever, but and it might not even be awful, but could still be chaotic. Like that's the thing. Like yeah. it, it's not necessarily. I still think being out of your home is awful. Oh, I agree with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just meant that it didn't necessarily, yeah. it's not necessarily that you're in like an awful uh, situation oh, no, when no, you're no. in foster care is what I meant. Oh. So like, 
it, it's still even then hard the the complete chaos of mm-hmm. being uprooted mm-hmm. especially as a very young person being yeah. uprooted from yeah your entire yeah your Everything entire context you know. yeah. so yeah anyway um one thing that i would recommend that chelsea and i've done before is is there are groups uh we're near not too far from columbus so we know some there but there are groups that help uh support recently emancipated teens or people that help get things that foster homes need taking donations furniture coats you know things like that that's kind of a way you can help those those children those teens whatever or even those families trying to get back on their feet which i think is really great so yeah it's a tough one yeah you want everybody home at night you know yeah i really i really appreciate your thought here that patience is is very important in approaching this conversation always i just i feel really lucky that we have the opportunity to interface with people who have been foster parents yeah and i don't know why i don't know why this is but we have kind of i feel like an uncommonly high number yeah. of friends we know who, a lot of people who <laughs> yeah, do it yeah. who foster yeah we have friends who fo- have ended up adopting the, mm-hmm. the kids they fostered several sets of people i don't know i yeah. just i'm not sure why this is that we've, hey, we've been lucky enough to be are, exposed to this system but we're surrounded by some really great people yeah that's yeah. what that is you know but i will say that our one set of friends it's, it's been so interesting to hear about them talk about the stuff that's specific to the school system and how difficult mm-hmm. it can be and how you don't necessarily think about how much everything is oriented toward the sort of assumption of mm-hmm. home life stability yeah so, so that that's not to say that every teacher out there is just uh, assuming every kid has it easy or something like that, but just like there's a kind of baseline assumption of when you take this home, somebody is going to mm-hmm. be there to kind of yeah. help ensure that it happens. That isn't the case. Yeah, it's just not at all. So yeah, I feel like I feel very fortunate to have been raised by a caseworker and a teacher. Hmm. I feel like that made me well prepared. Yeah, as a educator to become an educator yeah i was just gonna say i mm-hmm. this is yet another case where teachers are asked to be more than teachers and i think that you are in a unique position just given your personal history mm-hmm. uh but but i think that this is another case where we don't necessarily realize what is being asked of teachers they are being asked to kind of fill a semi-social worker role in a For lot sure. of cases For um, sure. And then the social workers and school psychologists and people like that who do exist are few and far between in educational systems. It's hard to fund those positions. It's hard mm-hmm. to recruit uh, quality candidates for those positions. Students end up being underserved, especially in these populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ask, we are asking probably too much of our educators to to oh, ask them to be. That doesn't. Uh, I don't think that happens that often, though, no, right? No, but I think like <laughs> on the one hand, it's like you want everybody to be aware of these problems and to be aware of the fact that you might be interfacing with somebody who has an incredibly unstable Mm -hmm. life behind the scenes. But on the other hand, it's just such a high demand on, Mm -hmm. on the role of the educator. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, I feel for the teachers. I feel for teachers. I'll say that (laughs) even in my time teaching, these placements have even been things like, Oh, they're living with grandma and grandpa now because of whatever or oh they're with their cousins because of whatever and so sometimes because they're if I teach at their school of origin but they've got all this going on behind the scenes you don't always know it because they've always been our student right so 
it's important for us to know, even if they haven't moved to grandma and grandpa's house, or even if they haven't moved to any, you know, yeah, those type of things impact them. This is fill in the blank, our trivia section. If you know the answer to this week's question, write into us hello at 16to1.com, all spelled out. If you know the correct answer to the trivia question this week, we will send you some stickers. So send us your mailing address if you would like stickers with your answer. Even if you don't send us the correct answer, we will still send you stickers. So go ahead and just try, even if you think you know. One of your friends, actually, uh, and former colleagues, wrote in with the correct answer from this past Uh episode's question. So we will be sending out some stickers. Okay, so last episode's question. One of the institutions at which Piaget studied is a world-renowned public research university. It is claimed that at the time Piaget was admitted, he was the only Swiss to be invited to study there. And that was between 1952 and 1963. Marie Curie was the first woman to become a professor at this famous university. And that was the Sorbonne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another fun fact yes. about Piaget. Yes. One of my best friends at work. Oh my gosh, yes. I forgot about this. Her grandpa studied with Piaget. Yeah. And they have a picture of her grandpa and Piaget skiing in the Alps. <laughs> casually <laughs> skiing. My friend who wrote in about the Sorbonne was like, also, have you talked to our other coworker? And I was like, what? I called her. I was like, are you telling me? She goes, yeah. I was like, you don't, you don't like talk about that? She goes, well, it doesn't come up very often. <laughs> Yeah. How? That would be every fun fact in my life. Right. The anyways. relation, the relative of our friend was a psychology professor, so it makes a lot of sense in the grand scheme. So anyways, yeah, uh, one of my favorite people, her grandpa, skied with Piaget in the office. Skiing with Piaget. Okay. All right. What's so cool. this episode's question? Would you like to ask? All right. Go for it. In 1806, two years after her very famous husband's death in New Jersey... She, along with several other women, founded the Orphan Asylum Society. In 1821, she was named the first directress and served for 27 years in that role until she left New York in 1848. In those roles, she helped raise funds, collected needed goods, and oversaw the care and education of over 700 children. By the time she had left, she'd been with the organization continuously since its founding, totaling 42 years. The New York Orphan Asylum Society continues to exist as a social service agency for children today, and it's called the Graham Wyndham. So who is that famous widow? Wow. Okay. Last thing. Yes. Back where it belongs. <laughs> to okay. see you on your way out. Listen. Here's what we learned. You're right. I'm not ashamed you go to first. admit that you're just so right. Okay, I it's will fine. go first. You just go first. What I learned. Okay. I'm actually really kind of ashamed to admit part of what I learned this week. And that's that despite the fact that I have been the type of nerd who can and should and does appreciate Lord of the Rings, despite the fact that I'm a fan of the world created Uh by Tolkien, I had never managed to actually commit to going all the way through the original trilogy of Lord of the Rings. I read The Hobbit a ton with my dad growing up. Uh, That was like my bedtime story. Okay. So I love The Hobbit. I love the world. Love the movies. Just tried desperately to get through the Lord of the Rings trilogy and never... I, I tried so many times to read through the first book and I would just always peter out within a few chapters. So, yeah, I finally decided to write that grievous wrong and read the trilogy, mm-hmm. the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I finished, I finished the first book, the fellowship of the ring. And I've started the second one. This is the book that I read while I'm 
powering through chores in the morning, like uh-huh. we talked about. But yeah, what I learned, what I learned was, and this doesn't really surprise me, given what I know of like the Inklings and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and all these people and all their conversations about literature and high fantasy and all of this stuff. What I learned was that Tolkien apparently really thought that he had like a keen skill for lyric ditties <laughs> for ditties. He reads really, really into ditties. Songs. Too many ditties. There are a lot of ditties. Okay? A lot. Too too many ditties. There, eh. The audiobook is what makes this difficult. Because when you're just reading it, you can kind of just skim through the song Mm-mm. and sing it in your own head and Mm-mm. whatever. But when you're listening to it in audiobook form at 1.75 speed, <laughs> <laughs> these ditties are no longer cute and quaint. It's they just are like a weird old man's voice chanting with a lot of vibrato about, and it's like the same melody over and over it's again just, because he's just making it up on the fly. They're walking, they're eating. Yeah, they're there's, walking, a, lot of, there's they're eating. a lot of walking and eating. In That's the what every ditty is about. And then they'll be like, remember that other I time we just, were walking and eating? You, you missed it. You were asleep, but I listened it. to Gimli's funeral dirge for Boromir just recently. I didn't miss it. That was a real... Ah, oh man. I just... Okay, here's the thing. Tolkien is a great builder of fantasy worlds, and I love The Lord of the Rings, and it's so much fun. But I do think he thought rather highly of his own skill as a composer of ditties and i'm not sure that that confidence was super well well founded okay that's all i'll say about it wasn't (laughs) it wasn't so many of our friends have had to hear me complain about these ditties it was the longest car ride (laughs) of my life it would like wake me up i would be asleep and then i would hear like some awful ditty at almost two times speed the the one the first book of the the trilogy is like a 24 hour audiobook so there was a lot of ditty singing i'd say a third of it is ditties maybe a quarter so anyway okay here's i learned learned. about tolkien's ditties yeah what did you learn well no ditties here life without ditties dumb diddly did Oh, Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. <laughs> okay. I hate that. What'd you learn? Okay. I have two things. They're not at all related. The first of which, Dame Judy Dench. She's putting out a book. It's coming out in the spring. And it's about Shakespeare. And Dame Judy Dench has appeared in a lot of Shakespearean plays over yes. her career. Her favorite uh, of mine is Lady M, Lady Macbeth. I, yeah, that, I think that's so, everybody's favorite so for good. Judy. With Ian McKellen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So recently, uh, in sort of a press tour that she's doing about this book, she appeared on Graham Norton, and he asked her to recite a sonnet from memory. And I teared up watching her. It was magic. So what did I learn? I learned that Dame Judy Dench is just as good as she's always been. And she can still reduce you to tears. That's what she you could come up with like a pretty obscure sonnet on the spot. Oh yeah, can you imagine and, just being on a talk show and being like, "Hey, by the way, can you recite right perfectly?" Yeah, a Shakespearean it, sonnet. You know, as someone who has like studied Shakespeare and teaches Shakespeare, it, it wasn't like the top ten most popular sonnets of which you could guess somebody might be able to at least pull a line from. No. You could pull a line from one of the, like, you know, one of his big sonnets. Yeah. You know, I could even, I could do, like, a little bit of Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, right? Uh-huh. Like, I could do that. That time of year thou mayest but in me behold. what she went into, oh, beautiful. Uh-huh. Anyways, um, so her book is called 
Shakespeare, the man who pays the rent. And it is a reference to Shakespeare paying her and her husband's rent because most of their early careers, uh, the rent was paid by appearing in Shakespeare shows. Amazing. So Shakespeare is the man who pays the rent. Okay. So there's that. Uh, I'll include a link to her sonnet. And you may weep as well. Okay. The last thing was, I know we've talked about the Library of Alexandria. I think we're going to have to do an episode on it. Um, okay. That would be pretty fun, actually. Yeah. But, so, it's always been taught, you know, as the one of the greatest losses of human existence was this library, right? When it was burned down by Caesar. But I never really thought about how they got their books at the Library of Alexandria. Okay. And how so they, the collection management yeah, of the... You know, you don't really think yeah. about it. But essentially what would happened was every time a ship came into port, all of their books had to be taken to the library where they were copied and they would keep a, that copy. And then they would turn the original text to the owner. And that was one of the ways that the Library of Alexandria grew. And that's one of the reasons why they had so many books from all over the world was because part of your entrance into port was turning over your books to be copied. Like the captain's library. I'm yeah. just so fascinated. I, I would love to know what books would typically be carried on those ships. Yeah. I just, well, I guess we'll never There's know. There's stories but. that they wrote down, right? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm you know, you're, I'm, I mean, we'll never know. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's the wildest part. Yeah. yeah. Could have been their observations of their travel, things they discovered, things they saw. The Alexandria Library makes me wonder how much we've humanity, lost. yeah, how much yeah. humanity was set back timeline wise in our own evolution um just as a intellectual species just because of what happened to that to the to the burning yeah freaking caesar man (laughs) he just couldn't keep it together so mad at him anyways that's how the uh, library of alexandria grew to its size was that one of the things was the books on board the ships interesting were given to them copied and returned very cool yeah okay any final thoughts wrapping it up for the week no no i'm good okay have a great week, everyone. Yeah. This is farewell. Oh, yeah. It's we'll farewell. see you in December. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Wait, <laughs> question no. mark? Is it really? This has wow. to be. It's like the fifth. Yeah, right. I just said that at the top of the show. I was like, we're not going to talk to you again. <laughs> well, yeah, we're not going to talk farewell, to you Farewell, gentle, gentle listener. We yep. will see you in December. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Listeners, thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're your co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Adams. And I'm Katie Day. Find our show notes, archives, and resources, sign up for our newsletter, or get in touch with us via the contact form at 16to1.com, all spelled out. We are so grateful for our listener support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the show and telling your friends or colleagues about it. The show is edited and produced by you, Chelsea Adams, and you're also responsible for our show's music. And you, Katie Day, serve as lead researcher and social media manager. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. All right. Should I put my NPR voice back on? No.